This I enjoyed. This gave me hope. This made me get up at four in the morning and write. You know, something I'd never felt for my legal career, nothing I felt for my marriage. I just felt like this was me. This is, this is something telling me this is what you're meant to do. Welcome to my podcast, Spirit and Spice. I'm Gilly Bashan, a writer and broadcaster with a passion for food. Not just the food on my plate, but the people and the stories behind it. Samaya Usmani, it's lovely to have you here. We're old friends. We've known each other for a while because we've worked on a radio show together. You're a writer, you're a broadcaster. You are from Pakistan, but you live here in Scotland. But where did it all begin? Well, it all kind of began with me growing up uh, quite differently, actually, because I suppose my my father at the time when I was very young, when I was sort of a year old, was uh, a Navy captain, a merchant Navy captain. And I began my life on a ship, really. So I had quite a peculiar childhood. And sometimes peculiar childhoods lead you to very different directions. And so I grew up about nine or ten years on a ship, surrounded by a mother who was obsessed with cooking and recipes. And so even though we had this amazing, um, you know, kitchen and a galley and been cooks that would cook meals every day. My mother absolutely hated that food. She said it all tasted the same and every day was mutton curry and every day was plain boiled rice and dal and she said you know this is not life. You can't just survive on this stuff. I want to try different things from different parts of the world and so because we were lucky enough to go to different ports all the time I grew up watching her as a very young child go to different markets and buy different ingredients and you know pick up recipe books and magazines I moved to Pakistan much later in my life, around 10 years old, and I grew up around a lot of women who cooked. So I was always surrounded by a family where, you know, a lifestyle in Pakistan is very much that if you can afford help in the kitchen, you have help in the kitchen to cook your meals for you. Now, nobody in my family, both my dad's side and my mother's side, liked people helping in the kitchen. The women were controllers of the kitchen. No chefs and no cooks were allowed in there except the ladies of the family. My paternal grandmother had five daughters, so five aunts and my grandmother always cooking in the kitchen. She was a head chef. They were from North India. They migrated to Pakistan in 1947. They were from the Jaunpur area, so very much that royal cooking from India that they cooked, um, the style they cooked with. So I grew up watching this very different style of cooking and obviously Pakistan was a very young country at the time so the cuisine was what they bought from India and then uh, my mum's side so my maternal grandmother was from Punjab but she was from the India Punjab and they also migrated in 1947 so she had a very different style of cooking very typically Punjabi food where food was you know meats were cooked with vegetables and meats were cooked with lentil So I watched these two different styles growing in front of me. Um, And then also I was a first generation Pakistani. So I was in Sindh, the province I grew up in, had a very rich culture of food. I had a lot of friends who were, you know, predominantly from Sindhi families who cooked a different kind of a cuisine that was nothing like the food that I cooked at home. Um, So all these things really inspired me. And of course, at the time, I, you know, my mom cooked all my meals. um, But I watched her. I always listened to everything they said. There was always banter in the kitchen. You know, the kitchen was always was a place where you were free to talk about whatever you wanted as a woman and nobody would judge you Um, and you could tell each other off or you could tell each other secrets so that's the kind of you know life I remember and 
because I had that crazy childhood growing up, um, I never really felt like I fitted into Pakistan. I always felt like I was an observer to Pakistan and that everybody thought I was a weirdo because I'd seen half the world before I was 10. And I was an only child, which was very unlike most Pakistanis that have big families. I was a bit of a sore thumb in Pakistan, to be completely honest with you. <laughs> well, to go back to that uh, childhood that you just mentioned, um, you know, on this ship, take us on a journey. For example, you must have started at a port in Pakistan, but where would you then end up and what were you taking on the ship? Yeah, um, we did very interesting trips. Uh, we Because in those days you didn't have container ships, you had cargo hold ships. And so they were merchant ships that would take things like cotton and rice, barley and things that you know we grow in Pakistan. Um, so they would be taken to different parts of the world, whether it was China or um, you know Turkey. Uh, we went to Europe as well, quite a lot of different European ports, and also Africa, so Djibouti, and you know that whole backdrop of that side of Africa. Lots of different ports. I mean, probably don't even remember most of them. But what I do remember is certain trips that we took. Um, one of them that really rings in my head um, and memories of you know silly things that I did was that we went to to Russia in those days quite a bit and we'd gone to Odessa and it was freezing cold and I'd never seen snow in my entire life and I was just a six-year-old or seven-year-old. That was my first experience of snow and first experience of blonde people and blue eyes and you know I'd always seen people from Pakistan, people on the ship. So my dad and my mom wanted to go clubbing. <laughs> I always say you went to some seedy place where they allowed kids <laughs> that took me in. And I sat there and I watched these two beautiful women, the typical quintessential Russian lady, you know, fur and beautiful long hair. And I started sort of talking to them and they knew a little bit of English and they sat and talked to me and they fed me all this different chicken Kiev, but it's quite long that they have in Odessa. And the other trip that was a really interesting one was when we went to North Korea to pick up arms and ammunition to bring back to Pakistan for the Pakistan Navy. And um, it was an interesting trip because I saw communist school. I've never been to a school myself. I used to study from a correspondence course and my dad used to be my teacher. And I suddenly go to the school and there's all these kids and lined up on desks and everything's, you know, very rigid and very particular. And I knew that I never wanted to be in a school like that. So those were quite interesting experiences. My greatest memories of food are in Turkey um, because we would go to the Bosphorus and sit at those open restaurants, have those lovely um, the kebabs and, and rice and, and just fish, so much fish. And in my head, I always had this word, um, Alton Balik, which obviously means golden fish. And I remember I thought, this fish is golden. It's special fish. You know, <laughs> I, I was like all these different experiences of food that I never knew. Um, so, you know, it was it's an exciting life. Very exciting. And you absorb things in a different way as a child, don't you? Which then fuel your sort of adult um, hunger later, you know, for whatever it is you choose to do in life. And with you, you've actually gone into food. But it wasn't just such a simple journey as that. So you're now back in Pakistan and you're age 10 or 11 now. So do you then go to school in Pakistan, having done these correspondence courses with your father on the ship? So how was that to suddenly be surrounded by children? It was weird. And I'll tell you, the, the weirdness began because when uh, my dad actually changed careers, so he wanted to always be a lawyer. So in between, for about a year, we spent um, in uh, Southampton because my dad went to Southampton University. Um, so I actually went to a little village school near Winchester. And so that was actually my first experience of proper school. 
and also my first experience of being the only brown person in a school. Mm. And even now I live in Britain and I never feel that I am a different color or a different race. That was the only time I actually felt it. And I think it was because it was the you know late 70s and people you know were very closeted in certain areas where there were lots of Asians and some they weren't. Mm-hmm. And then one day I came back to my parents and I was in school and I was crying and saying, I, w- I want to go somewhere where I'm not the only colored person. And my father's heart sank. And I think that's when it hit my dad that, you know, once I finish this, I've got to go home and I've got to start my legal career and I've got to give her a normal life. So that after that year when I came, I thought, you know, I've come to my country, which is my parents' home, and and I'll make friends and everyone will accept me because I'm going to be the same person, you know, like everybody else here. And I go in and, and everyone starts to speak to me and they said, you're different. Why do you have such an English accent? Who do you think you are? And I said, I've been on a ship and I've been traveling. Oh, so you've seen the world. You know, everyone judged me and I wasn't one of them. You know, and that was a weird feeling. You know, I'm, I'm Pakistani, I'm the same color. My parents come from the city. So that was a very difficult thing for my age group, you know, sort of that transition 11, 12, when you're starting to get quite hormonal and change. And, you know, I felt really alone and I was never shy, but I was always insecure. I was insecure that I was different because I'd had different experiences. And in some ways I sort of felt like I had to apologize for it. But I tried my best to fit in and fitting in was tough because I never liked to be like everybody else. So I just kind of went into my little place and had a couple of friends. But was that also when you were back in Pakistan at this age at school, was that the time when you had all your different grandmothers and aunts in the kitchen at home? So there must have been this lovely bubble of security at home. Exactly. Yeah. That is where I go to. And so that became my space of comfort. So my greatest connection to anything to do with family and home was cooking with my mom and always watching her. And in so many ways, when I, I moved to Pakistan, my, my grandmother, my nani, my mom's mom, we stayed with her. We lived in an upstairs little flat. She had a little flat and we stayed in upstairs for many years while my dad was setting up his legal career. And that was brilliant because my parents had free childcare and now my parents were back home and they wanted to meet their friends. And I was the eldest grandchild and, um, and you know, I was there with her and she was on her own. She was a widow for many years and she loved to grow. You know, we had mangoes and chikus and all these lovely fruits and we would spend loads of time growing and picking and then cooking. And she loved to cook and she, you know, was a typical grandmother, loved to feed you. Um, and so she taught me a lot of my basic cooking, but there was so much love and comfort in process and the time that she took. Anytime I said, oh, so my, you know, I would, my family called me Somi. They're like, Somi, are you feeling sad? Are you feeling, oh, let me make you some kheer, you know, some mm, rice pudding. That's the great one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the kheer. Every, yes. every, everyone's oh, comfort food. Comfort food. <laughs> and I, she's like, okay, I'll make you some, you know, I'll make you some eggs and I'll make you this and let's make a biryani together. You know, let's make a pulao, very Punjabi, make a pulao together. And then for my dad's side, the family every Sunday and Saturday we'd go over to see my my daddy and and there were all these five aunts and they were cooking in the kitchen and I would be there I'd never really do anything but I would watch yeah and I would smell and I would kind of see how my grandmother would be you know walk in and everyone would just be looking oh she's going to come and tell us that's not right but she'd just come in she'd flick something or she'd cut something and she'd add something else and she'd taste it and you know so I knew that she was doing things to add and take away and and these were just observations so food had definitely by then become my comfort, my little anchor. Yeah. And, yeah. and that is why I suppose many years later I clung to it and, and got where I am. And at that stage, did you manage to get around Pakistan and realize that actually there's a lot of regional variation or were you very much just absorbed in what the, the family cooked? 
That's that's a very good question because I think that Pakistani food is is very misunderstood. People think that Pakistani food is own curries and it's all spicy and hot, but it isn't. You see, Pakistan as a country is extremely um, diverse ethnically. And in Pakistan, there's a definite thing that if you live in a particular part of Pakistan, you only eat that food and you don't go venture outwards. So in my house, there was very much that typical kind of, you know, Northern Indian Punjabi food that always was predominant. But I was a very curious eater. And I ate everything because I was exposed to so much as a child. So I had friends who were Balochi. I had friends who were Patans, you know, from Pashtun areas. So I ate all these different foods, never realizing that these are different regional foods of Pakistan, but just thinking, oh, why does that person cook so differently? I love that. And they love so much mustard seeds or they use no chili. If they were Pashtun, they would only use pepper. And so I did realize there were different cuisines from Pakistan. And there were a couple of trips that we took up north to, to northern Pakistan. And I will never forget them because they opened my eyes to my own country. The funny thing about southern Pakistanis is they turn their nose up to the rest of the country. Oh, the northern food is horrible. It's so bland. There's no chili in it. All they do is barbecue. All they do is cook with animal fat and pepper and salt. That's so boring. And I was sort of convinced that it was boring. But I did taste it. And I think what was really exciting about Karachi is that there's a real um, melting pot of all the immigrants as well. So there's like a whole colony, like the Gujarati colony, where you only get Gujarati food, or uh, the Hyderabad colony, where you only get Hyderabadi food. Um, and it's amazing. It's become a part of our cuisine, even though a lot of people say, well, that's a Hyderabadi dish. Why are you cooking it? That's a Kashmiri dish. It's because it's all sort of become this part of Pakistani food and it's taken on a different flavor. And do you um, still notice the Persian influence as well? Yes. I mean, there's a definite Persian influence when it comes to rice dishes um, and, and definitely a very strong Arab influence as well because um, all the Muslims, um, the Arabs, you know, came into the subcontinent from what is Pakistan, Sindh, uh, you know, that side of the Arabian Sea. So there was a very strong barbecue culture in Karachi. So very strong on meats that were marinated for very long and then cooked on the grill, um, kebabs, lots of deep fried breads like puris, um, but a rice culture that was definitely influenced by Persians um, and Afghani. So there's a lot of, you know, obviously lots of different refugees from Afghanistan that came in through um, the borders. There's a lot of like Afghani palaos and Afghani kebabs and, and, and you know, uh, burani, which is quite a big thing now in Pakistan. It's always been, and everyone thinks that's an Afghani dish or a Persian dish, you know, cooking aubergines and smoking them and all that sort of thing. But I'm more fascinated by the Central Asian influences now that I'm discovering from the Gilgit Baltistan area. Um, and also the land is so different, like where I grew up, Karachi, and, and that whole scene is, is very desert. Um, and it's obviously a city now that's created out of a desert. But if you go slightly more to the northern areas, you find the agriculture is such a main part of the state. They're very self-sufficient because it's always been cut off by mountain ranges. So they grow very much everything. Um, and they also eat very seasonally of what grows on the mountains. Um, they dry a lot. They ferment a lot. They eat a lot of dried fruits and a lot of local oils like apricot and, and uh, walnuts. Um, mm, cooking with apricot yeah, oil, that so must they, be lovely. They, they do, yeah, and they, don't, they always say that they don't cook a lot with it because it 
not meant to be cooked with. It's meant to be eaten raw because it does become quite quite sort of bitter. So they, they normally add it to the end mm -hmm. and they pour on top of things and they let it heat through rather than cook in it. Mm -hmm. um, and they will basically cook a lot in basic in animal fat and then add flavor with the apricot oil, add flavor with the walnut oil, which I find completely fascinating and different. And again, going back to a southern Pakistani family, my parents find it absolutely disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> my dad needs his chili and his spice. But I find it fascinating because to me, it spikes interest of history and invasion and migration and, and all of those exciting parts of how land evolves with people and, and movement. I think that's where you and I connect so well yeah. because I've got my anthropological background and I've always brought that to the books and I, I find that fascinating too. You have, from all of this, become an expert on Pakistani food and you've written two beautiful books. Um, one is called Summers Under the Tamarind Tree and the other is Mountain Berries and Desert Spice. But just to go back a little bit, you didn't just go from school in Pakistan to becoming a food writer. You had a little period of time before food sort of took hold of you. Tell us what, what happened to you after school. My father was very insistent that you must have a career that supports you financially because you're an only child and you're a girl and I will support my daughter to do whatever she likes. Now, broad words he said do whatever you like. <laughs> he did say, I think the great profession for you would be law. Which it's, he was already yes, doing. Yes, and successfully. <laughs> and, you know, he was doing really well in his second career, his passion. And I kind of felt I was coerced into taking up a legal career. I loved drawing. I loved um, cooking, obviously. And I also loved things like hairdressing, anything creative. And so I said to my dad, I don't want to do law. I really want to do hairdressing. My no, no daughter of mine's going to become a barber. <laughs> my dad's words. And I said, I'm looking at Cordonville because we'd come to London a few times and I went to the school in uh, Malibin. I said, Daddy, please, can I do the chef course? It just sounds amazing. I am not paying for my daughter to become a cook. You can learn that at home, were his words. And so even though he meant well, and even though he, he was thinking of the best thing for me career-wise, I got coaxed into a career in law. I landed up doing the law and I can't say I really enjoyed it. I actually specialized in shipping law, which was, you know, my dad's forte. Um, and I worked with my dad for a while and until I moved. Of course, we're not talking about my personal parallel lifeline behind this. We can talk about that too. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I found myself doing law and I, and I continue to do it. And in some ways, I felt like, you know, working with my dad, meant that I was supporting him and you know, that meant something to me and having his you know practice to have the support was good. And at the age that you were then how common was it for women to be working? I mean most girls that I knew had some jobs and most of them had jobs like um, you know working in a bank or um, or you know maybe doctors. We had money, we were comfortable and we were all sort of educated in English so we could speak and we could communicate and I think that you know the whole thing is that if you can speak English in a country like Pakistan which is obviously an ex-colony you know it has this real reverence for anyone who can speak English uh, you got ahead and people respected you and wanted to give you good jobs. So a lot of my friends did jobs but a lot of them got married it was literally that they did those careers and jobs just to show that they were more marketable as a wife. So, you know, oh, you're going to get married to that girl. Oh, she's a doctor. So it became a bit, you know, like the status symbol that you've studied and, and now you're excellent, marketable um, uh, wife. <laughs> so I saw a lot of my friends getting married.
my parents never forced me to marry. They they wanted me to do stuff with my life. But I started to fall into that trap of wanting to fit in again. And my parents were always open. They said, if you meet someone nice, a nice chap, you can marry him. And, you know, <laughs> as long as his family is decent and he's decent. And so I was 21 and I was on the throes of going to LSC for, to read my LLM degree. And I'd been working with my dad and studying um, in the local law college as well because I wanted to do another couple of years in London. And in the meantime, I went to a very interesting crabbing trip to look for crabs and eat with friends. And and you cook and it's a beautiful experience. You cook on the boat and you have a great time. And I went with a friend. A friend of mine told me, you know, there's some really nice boys coming. You might like them. And I said, well, you know, I'm going in, in six months. I'm leaving for LSC. I, you know, I don't want to meet any boys. So I went for this crabbing trip and unfortunately, unfortunately, I did meet a young man who was very charming and handsome and and uh, sort of took my breath away and it was all very romantic. And, and after that, I was in this complete confusion. What do I do? I'm going to go in LSC. And he said, no, I really want to date. Then he'd sort of pick me up from work and we'd go for lunch and no one knew about it. It was all very sort of exciting. And I said, whoa, this is amazing. Maybe this is my life. Maybe I should just get married. And he said, oh, I want to marry. He was so young. He was 22 or 23 and I was 21. And I said, oh, this is it. This is it. Forget LSE. Forget everything. I'm marrying him. So I did. My dad was devastated. You can't not go to college. Da, 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 da. You have to go. Uh, anyway, I fought and my parents felt I'll do something ridiculous like a lope. So they said, right, just get her married off. And so that was my first marriage. Yes, you mentioned that yourself, that that was your first marriage, because like your appetite for food, you then acquired an appetite for husbands. Yes, I did. (laughs) So what happened after the first marriage? Well, after the first one, it clearly didn't work out. We were married for about eight or nine months and, you know, we just realized we were kids. And I think a lot of the coping that I did in that marriage was cooking. I did a lot of cooking and my ex-mother-in-law was a great cook and a lot of recipes that I learned from her by tasting her food, not because she wanted to share them with me. The good thing that came out of marriage was that I deciphered some of her recipes, <laughs> which I quickly, promptly put into my little repertoire. I moved on and I did work with my dad for a couple of years. And then I went away to London. I did my LLM at London University and I came back. And then I was sort of in my um, late 20s by then. And I felt that everyone's married. All my friends had kids. And, um, you know, they were all settled down with really rich husbands and beautiful homes. And and they were all, you know, 29, 28. And I was jealous. I was like, well, this this is what my parents thought that my life could be. So I, um, you know, dated a couple of guys, you know. And then I fell off a horse. And a friend of mine at the time, who was just a friend, came to my rescue. And I think that concussion may have made me fall in love with him because that's what happened. <laughs> and my second husband was somebody who I'd known for many years. And then we sort of you know, fell in love and got married. And that year and a half, I did build up a bit of a home and a life. And um, But we were unhappy. We got divorced. And at that time, I felt like I was a failure. You know, I was doing a career I hated, 30, not married, no kids, uh, two failed marriages, a career I don't love. Pretty bad place to be, especially in Pakistan where these things are, you know, looked at and everyone's scrutinizing your life because everyone's in your life constantly. So at that point in time, I started to uh, think, right, I've got to find a nice man. I've got to settle down. And I'm not very marketable being twice divorced. Who's going to get married to me? And I met someone really nice um, my pen shot for younger men. I met my, my third husband. Um, I met him uh, through my legal career because he was a lawyer. And, uh, and his, his comes from a lovely family. My parents knew his family. 
Uh, but we did have a big problem. His mum did not think I was very good marriage material for his for her lovely son who had never been married before and so she put her foot down there's no way this marriage is happening so ultimately my ex-husband and I eloped to London and that's how I landed up in Britain again the reality of the fact that I didn't know myself came out and suddenly I started to miss my food miss those memories of comfort and how I felt connected to to my home through my food and which is why I started cooking those things and I realized I never really learned anything and I didn't know recipes and I wanted to cook those d dishes again and, and I started to call my mom take recipes down try them cook them cook from memory cook from my own memories of flavor uh, and then I started to find a real sense of self this I enjoyed this gave me hope this made me get up at four in the morning and write, you know, something I'd never felt for my legal career, nothing I felt for my marriage. I just felt like this was me. This is, this is something telling me this is what you're meant to do. And, you know, I had a daughter and she was a few years old and, and you know, things with my ex-husband and I were sort of falling apart. It wasn't a negative fall. It was literally, we just realized we've grown apart. So it was quite an amicable breakup. My daughter obviously stayed with me. And by then I'd got my first book deal because I was determined I wanted to make this a career. I then decided I wanted to give it everything. So I quit law, uh, which made me very happy and also very penniless. <laughs> um, but it did make me very happy to give it up. You know, I got to Scotland. That's a different story altogether. <laughs> so, well, there you go. You got to Scotland. So how did you get to Scotland from London? What brought you here? Um, well, initially, it was a guy that I was dating who was from Scotland. And I wanted to give this relationship a chance. But this time, outside the bounds of being married and feeling the obligations of marriage and having to make it work. Um, I thought it'd be a nice way to for us to start a new life, my daughter and I. Uh, so I decided after a couple of years of seeing this guy um, long distance that it might be an idea to give this relationship a go and see if it actually works out, but live on my own terms in my own home. I did visit Scotland a few times and it is the only country in the world where I felt a sense of belonging. And not just a sense of belonging of, wow, this is a lovely, friendly country where people are so welcoming, but a place where I felt that I had been before. Like when I'm driving up to your house, even if I'm in you know, a cozy jumper, I start getting goosebumps. And I felt like, I really love this place. I want to live here. And sadly, the relationship didn't work out um, about a year or so later. And that was absolutely fine. But then I had made friends. I had you know, started doing the BBC stuff. I, I started to get to know people really quickly. Uh, and my daughter was so happy. I think you need to write a book about um, <laughs> my life through men. You know? Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Every journey you've taken has involved a man. You can be whoever you want to be here. To me, that's freedom. You know, I have always sought freedom. And maybe I did it through men and maybe I did it through different things of career. But I did it so that I could find this freedom, which is what I feel now. I just, I actually feel free. And that is an amazing feeling. And maybe that's why I feel at home here. Yeah, and also at the same time as coming here, you've actually found what you love to do. And so everything sort of came together. So what's the next stage? So I've always felt like, you know, I love cookery books and I love the story that food tells. Um, but I also think food does something else. It actually takes you back and is a way of expressing human emotion. Sadness, of longing, of grief, of love. Um, and it's not always about the recipes or the flavors, but it's experience of it being around you and how it influences your life. I am presently working on a memoir that is a story about women and Pakistan cooking 
and how it is a very liberating place for women in a country that is very uh, male dominated and it is very where women don't always have a voice in in the regular uh, you know realms of society but in the kitchen they have a voice in the kitchen they have freedom in the kitchen they have dreams and i watched that because a lot of my aunts did lots of things with their lives but they were always hiding behind being themselves completely coming out and really flowering and i think i want to show that how that beautiful freedom in the kitchen is what's given me freedom today is a special food for a, a pakistani wedding i mean you've had three of them so um, have you <laughs> you've had three food. major feasts <laughs> i lucky me i think the third one we didn't do a massive feast we just did a very small sort of elopey kind of wedding but um the other two were very very big and you know food food is very much a celebratory thing in pakistan anyway and we all you know our biggest entertainment in pakistan is eating and feeding people um and marriages is one of those things that people all go and we don't have just like 10 or 100 people at a marriage you know at weddings there will be like 8 to 900 people at a wedding um, most of the people you've never seen or heard of before and they're normally your parents friends or their friends friends and cousins cousins and but then for them you have to have loads of food and the food is very celebratory we have very particular things for for weddings and those things should be on the menu there will be things like a very traditional korma and we love our meat so there must be a meat korma whether it's mutton or chicken or something and our kormas are not your creamy kormas they're more of an onion based curry very fragrant with lots of saffron and cura which is crupine essence so very very strong and and and, and very slow cooked so and and swimming in oil um, and uh, so so that that's there and there's always a biryani always be some kind of a meat biryani i mean if you had a vegetable biryani at a wedding people would walk out <laughs> they mm. need to see meat um so it's definitely meat heavy um and always things like sweet meats like jalebi and and all those of fried donuts and and things so yeah i mean definitely and halva carrot halva definitely at a wedding so i've had all of those things yes <laughs> Which I love curried hell so do I. But I also love your goat biryani. Oh yes. Yeah, that was delicious when you made that once for us on the radio. To get back to your memoirs then, I think it'll resonate with a lot of women in many cultures. Many people remember the cooking with their grandmother or the, with their cooking with their mother or the aunts or whoever it is and it forms the memoirs and stories of so many interesting women. I look back at my grandmother's food. She knew how to cook many things, but I can't say everything of hers was delicious. But it's that act, that act of love and that act of comfort and and togetherness and and bringing someone in close to your chest and saying, you know, it doesn't matter. I'll make you something with love and and you'll feel better or you'll feel comfort. Um and those memories are what makes grandma's food amazing. And and in some ways it's probably what inspired me to become a food writer it was that comfort it gave me and and the only thing that I wear I felt at home no matter what accent I had no matter where I'd lived or traveled no matter what color of skin my skin color was or or you know what I wanted to do with my life career wise and i think that is a resonating underlining feeling of the memoir i do want to first write do you have a title for this book well at the moment it's a working title and i wanted to name it andaza um which means um uh, sensory cooking and cooking from memory uh, but andaza means so much more because the word andaza means to live 
life with your own estimations and um, andaz means a way a life a way of life or a or a way of picking your life because andaza is what i used to cook those recipes again because mm. nobody taught me then i i went back into my memory to to cook them and i've also lived my life like andaza yeah, yeah yeah it sums you up right it kind of does it does yeah definitely and just to sum up where you are now you have found yourself another relationship in mm-hmm. which you're very very happy yes. so that's lovely and your daughter is super happy at school but you have also decided to share some of your knowledge as a social enterprise so i felt like glasgow had some really bad eating habits that could be helped by just giving them the skill and so i felt like i wanted to you know help people with sort of more impoverished areas where they could come in cook together um and learn something new something they can feed their families with in a good cost effective way but more importantly there's a lot of loneliness and and you know what hurt me the most i think was the older people that get you know really lonely after a certain time and in my culture you don't have that you know you keep your grandparents with you and you know they go completely nuts and you still lip it up with them and you have respect for them some of them are so funny they've never eaten garlic before said how could you have lived a life without <laughs> garlic <laughs> i could never live without garlic and funny it should be glasgow you ended up because there are actually so many pakistani people in they glasgow are. they've yep. been there for many many years and set up all of the early curry houses i yes. mean gibson street is famous for absolutely for their restaurants when i go for my so my groceries to the pakistani shop um, which is a big massive shop i go to um, i find all my brands of you know jams and chutneys that i grew up with those pakistani brands are in those shops and you know spices that they have are those particular brands i grew up with so it sort of makes me feel at home that i don't really miss anything um if i want to cook a particular dish you know i can get that you know those little things that just kind of remind you of home so when i go to that area in, in pollock shield i feel like sometimes i forget i'm in scotland i'm like ooh i'm scotland <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that's lovely well smy it's been a joy talking to you and lovely. i'm delighted that you're my friend because i know that i'll <laughs> always have some delicious food every time i see you and i'm really looking forward to your memoirs thank when you they so come much. out thank you for having me